0: Good afternoon, my name, thank you. (laughs) My name is Candace Square and it's my great honor to stand here as a graduate of the University of Virginia College Class of 2011 to introduce Richard Cohen, President of the Southern Poverty Law Center. He's a giant of the legal world who throughout his career has stayed true to the fundamental values of the U.S. Constitution. It is this shared belief in individual rights and equality under the law that inspired me to become involved with ACS and serve as the president of the Paul M. Bear, Louisiana State University chapter. As I began my legal education in 2017, our country was in the midst of a crisis. A crisis of hope, a crisis of civility, and a crisis of leadership. I looked to ACS to restore my faith in our democracy I work with my chapter to fight against bias in the criminal justice system and advocate for greater access to mental health care. Our chapter continues its work to ensure that our classmates and our community know that the Constitution in its truest form provides safe harbor for everyone. We look to leaders like Justice Thurgood Marshall to shore up our faith. Justice Marshall once said, to protest against injustice is the foundation of all of our American democracy. Few have embodied this principle more than Richard Cohen. As a graduate of the University of Virginia Law School, Mr. Cohen has been fighting against injustice for his entire career. He began his career at SPLC as legal director, fighting against one of the ugliest forms of injustice, white supremacy. He garnered victories in a number of truly He garnered victories against a number of truly hateful white supremacist organizations. He did not rest there. He has also worked to defend the human dignity of incarcerated people and to bring down the symbol of hatred that is the Confederate battle flag from the Alabama State Capitol. As president of the SPLC, he continues to lead a dedicated group of attorneys committed to fighting hatred and bigotry. He is also the only person that I know that has won in the Supreme Court and has also won an Oscar. Please join me in welcoming Richard Cohen.
1: There is no way I can live up to what Candace said. Uh, I, uh, I had the honor of arguing in front of Thurgood Marshall, and I'm afraid to say that I don't think any of you are gonna have the same honor. The Supreme Court has changed tremendously <clears throat> and that means that the work that all of you are going to do is going to be that much more difficult. <clears throat> it's really though, it's great to be back at UVA. Uh, my, uh, I'm, I'm not a class of 1L, 2L, 3L, I'm a class of 43L. <clears throat> and my fun fact is that I am suffering P- PSTD walking through the halls here and thinking about those exams. It is a it is truly a tremendous honor to uh, be with you today, to be asked to speak and say a few words. It's also an opportunity for me to pitch the Southern Poverty Law Center. <clears throat> We've grown tremendously in the last few years, almost doubled in size. We have 350 people on staff, about 100 attorneys in 13 separate locations in the deep, deep South. We're opening offices in Texas. We're opening offices in DC. And uh, so we invite all of you, all of you, uh, to apply at some point. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, which is the second capital of the Confederacy. Today I live in the first, Montgomery, Alabama. It's the place from which the telegraph was sent to bomb Fort Sumter. It's the place where the first White House of the Confederacy stands. But Montgomery is actually known for much more than that. It's also known for being the birthplace of the Civil Rights Movement. This is the view from my desk, from my window. It's the church from which Dr. King launched the modern civil rights movement. I tell my colleagues that if you cannot do good work looking at that church, you may not have good work uh, in you. Dr. Dr. King's message was extraordinarily powerful for a very simple reason. He said his dream was deeply rooted in the American dream, our founding documents. He said his mission. His mission was to redeem the soul of America, and what he meant by that was ridding our country of racism. He dreamed that our country one day would live out the true meaning of its creed. The word creed is so important. What he meant by that, of course, is live up to the ideals of the Declaration of Independence, the idea that all people are created equal, that all people are endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. That's him at the, uh, hello? A little closer, did you say? How much closer, that much closer? If you can't hear me, please raise your hand. Um, You know, but the reality is that our country has never lived up to its ideals. We've always been living a contradiction. The people who wrote the Declaration of Independence, the man who wrote it, just uh, who, who lived so close to here, was himself a slave owner. The Constitution countenanced slavery. After Reconstruction, the Confederate states, including Virginia, disenfranchised uh, the former slaves once again. This is from my home state of Alabama, and they were nakedly explicit about what they intended when they passed the Constitution, its Constitution of 1901. It was to establish white supremacy once again. You know, we, we, we see ourselves as a creedal nation. We see ourselves as a nation founded upon shared ideals, rather than a nation founded upon blood, religion, or shared ethnicity. We think of ourselves as different from Europe in that way. But truthfully, it was really only after World War II that we began to make significant progress towards throwing off the legacy of Jim Crow. We had Truman's uh, desegregation of the military, the great decision in Brown v. Board, uh, the mass movement that Dr. King led, starting with the bus boycott, and of course, the great civil rights acts of the 1960s, particularly the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That act was prompted by a horrific event at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in March of 1965, it was when marchers were attacked trying to go from Selma to Montgomery to protest the denial of voting rights. Fifty years later, 50 years later, Barack Obama walked across the same bridge with John Lewis, and the woman who he's standing who's in the, the wheelchair is a woman named Amelia Boynton someone who had the privilege of knowing, the person who actually invited Dr. King to Selma in 1965. It was truly, truly a historic day. Now look, people talked after Obama was elected about America being a post-racial country. I don't think anyone who actually said that believed it. It was usually mentioned just as a straw man to say, we're not in a post-racial America. But the reality is that President Obama's election signaled something. It signaled a closing of the gap between our ideal as a creedal nation and our reality as a racist one. I thought that one of the most interesting moments when President Obama was elected were the words of his defeated adversary, John McCain. I don't know if many of you remember what he said. At what point he said, A century ago, President Theodore Roosevelt's invitation uh, to Booker T. Washington to visit and to dine with him at the White House was taken as an outrage in many quarters. America today is a world away from the cruel and prideful bigotry of that time. I think we can all acknowledge that point without being complacent today, but the truth is as soon as President Obama was elected, he began to be delegitimized. Uh, He represented the change that a lot of people were scared of, and I'm not just talking about people in the Tea Party movement who, you know, delegitimize the president as, you know, the secret Kenyan-born Muslim, you know, Manchurian candidate bent on, you know, subverting America. I'm talking about people who should have known better. People like Newt Gingrich, the former speaker of the House, who said that the president operated from an anti-colonial Kenyan point of view. And people like John Sununu, of the former governor of New Hampshire, the former chief of staff to President George H.W. Bush, who said, shamefully, that he wished that President Obama would learn how to be an American. It really was an astonishing thing coming from a man who was born in Cuba. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, the person who beat the birther drum the loudest was Mr. Trump. And, you know, to me, it's really quite incredible, quite incredible to think today that the birther-in-chief is now the commander-in-chief. But the reality is that Mr. Trump's statements about birtherism and whatnot, were just the first of the thousands of lies that he would say on his way to the White House and since he has been there. And frankly, from the moment, from the very moment, that Mr. Trump came down that escalator in the tower in New York City that bears his name, he ran a campaign marked by bigotry, xenophobia, crude racial stereotypes, anti-Semitism, and tweets from the gutter of the neo-Nazi world. You know, typically, the white supremacists that we follow, they don't involve themselves in presidential politics. Why? Because they think each party is irredeemably corrupt. Not a dime's worth of difference between the Republicans and Democrats, you know, in the view of most white supremacists historically. Not this time. People like David Duke told people that it would be treason to their race not to vote for the president. And Mr. Trump shamelessly pandered to them. I look at this picture, and I actually saw this picture in a dictionary under the definition of the word awkward. (laughs) I don't know what in the world Mr. Obama must have been thinking that day, but I gotta tell you something. The contrast between Mr. Obama and President Trump is much starker than the difference between black and white. Mr. Obama rose to national prominence with a speech at the 2004 Democratic Convention. I don't know how many of you remember it. He said, there's not a black America, there's not a white America, there's not a Latino America, there's not an Asian America, there's just the United States of America. It's the creedal vision, right? It's the vision of Dr. King. It's the the vision of out of many, one. What did Mr. Trump do? He came to power on almost the exact opposite vision, the vision of division, a type of populism tinged unmistakably with ethnic nationalism. Mr. Trump's message was powerful, not because most of his voters were a basket of deplorables as Ms. Clinton seemed to suggest during the campaign. His message was powerful because it played into the fears of so many Americans. Fear of losing status, the fear of cultural decline, a fear of our country's changing demographics. When the Southern Poverty Law Center was founded in 1970, Less than one in five persons in our country was non-white. Today, that figure's more than doubled. And the country's having growing pains. It's having a backlash to our country's changing demographics. Mr. Trump didn't create this backlash. The underlying dynamics were in place long before he appeared on the political scene. Social scientists have told us for a while that white people tend to see racial matters as a zero sum game, a game they are losing. They see sometimes gains for people of color as coming at their expense. People of color say, well, gosh, why can't we all share in the pie? But, you know, the changing demographics, uh, false claims about affirmative action, and now this notion of Black Lives Matter, people say, well, gee. What about my life mattering? <laughs> they don't, they don't, they, they, what was, what's been happening in our country pre existed, Mr. Trump. But Trump, in a very, very masterful way, has exploited, has exacerbated the kinds of tensions, and in the process, energized the white supremacist movement. We saw it, we saw it the day after the election as white supremacists were openly celebrating Mr. Trump's election. In the first 10 days after his election, we documented almost 900 hate-filled incidents. About 40% of them bore Mr. Trump's signature. What I mean by that, used his motto, Make America White Again. On the 11th day after Mr. Trump was elected, There was a rally blocks from the White House, led by the originator of the term alt-right, that ended in cries of hail Trump, hail victory, and Nazi salutes. And in this city, at the University of Virginia, in August of 2017, we saw the white supremacist movement explode. What do you remember their chants? you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us. What they were expressing was a fear among white supremacists of cultural genocide, of white genocide, this fear of being displaced in their own country. It was the same fear, the same fear, that led Dylan Roof to gun down nine people as they prayed in an African American church in Charleston. was the same fear that led a man more recently to murder 11 Jews who were praying in a Pittsburgh synagogue. The killer there saw the invading caravan, the so-called invading caravan, as a precursor to white genocide. And he used the very language of our president, Mr. Trump who had talked about the invasion in an effort to uh, rile up his base. Here's a picture of the invaders now. Mr. Mr. Trump's campaign was but a prelude to his administration. Think about the people that Mr. Trump drew to his side. Steve Bannon, a man who proudly claimed that he had made Breitbart News the platform for the the alt-right people like Jeff Jeff Sessions, someone I know personally uh, and someone who I think had a very, very cramped vision of our Constitution, and of course, the loathsome Stephen Miller. (laughs) Think about Trump's policies, the Muslim ban, ignoring police abuse, abandoning the LGBT community, turning back the clock to a host of civil rights protections. I hope that will we'll fare better under Mr. Barr. Now, to some degree, Mr. Trump is being thwarted. The courts, at least so far, have often stood up to him. The press has called him out for his lies and not been intimidated by him. The Democrats have taken over the House. But even if the Mueller investigation were to lead to an early exit of Mr. Trump, I worry about the long-term damage that he's caused. After the election, Representative Mark Sanford, a conservative, an extraordinarily conservative Republican from South Carolina said that Mr. Trump had unearthed some demons. I think our work proves the point. Two days ago, we released our most most recent annual count of hate groups in the United States. And what we saw was a record number, 1,020. In the four years that coincide with Mr. Trump's campaign and presidency, we've seen an increase of about 30% in the number of hate groups in our country. What you also see that in the latter years of Mr. Obama's presidency, the number of hate groups had fallen. More disturbing to me than the number of hate groups in our country is the impact of the kind of rhetoric that we're hearing on the nation's school children. We did a survey in 2016 that asked teachers about the impact of the campaign in their classrooms. We heard story after story about how young people were scared. Kids coming to school, worrying about whether their parents would be home when they got home. Incredible stories of kind of increased bulliness in classrooms. We got one letter from a teacher. I'll never forget it. She said, look. When a kid in my class used to say something rude or off color, I could stop him or her with just a look or one word. Now I can. The kids would say, well, I heard it from that guy on television. It's a really, really sad state of affairs. What all this tells me is that the social fabric in our country has been torn. We sometimes hear that nobody's born a bigot. It's a nice, nice thought, but I doubt whether it's true. People are ethnocentric beings. As an evolutionary matter, as part of our instinct for survival, we tend to prefer people like ourselves. It takes civilization, it takes our family, it takes our schools, it takes our civic institutions, it takes our religious organizations to help us curb our ethnocentric instincts. Once they're afraid, I'm not so sure how quickly and how easily it will be to put them back together. There are undoubtedly some incredibly helpful signs, hopeful signs. All of you are here today. People around the country are protesting against hate. Recent polls tell us that the majority of the mem- American public recognizes that Trump has encouraged white supremacist groups. Seventy percent of the American public say that Mr. Trump has damaged the dignity of his office. Fully three quarters of the American public said that racist violence was a factor when they went to the polls this past November. What this tells me is that we have not lost our ability to be shocked. We haven't lost our ability to be outraged. And that's an incredibly important thing because quite frankly, really the soul of our nation is still at stake. As I said earlier, Mr. Trump exploited the fears that propelled him to the presidency, but he did not create them. As the country's demographics continue to change, there will continue to be a backlash. I personally think that Americans, by and large, are incredibly naive. They think that progress is inevitable. They think that it you know that it's our manifest destiny in some way. But if anything is true, the last few years have told us that it's important that we not be naive, that it's important that we be vigilant, until we are truly a creedal nation, truly a high functioning, thoughtful, multiracial, multi ethnic democracy until that day we'll continue to be faced with the question that lincoln raised in the gettysburg address whether a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all people are created equal can long endure in front of our office there's a monument to the civil rights memorial it tells the story of the civil rights of our civil rights history Famous events, such as the the decision of Brown v. Board. Infamous events, such as the stand in the schoolhouse door. More importantly, it remembers the martyrs of the movement. People like Medgar Evers, who died so the rest of us could have the right to vote. And those four little girls in that Birmingham church, who were killed by cowardly Klansmen in an effort to hold back the, the hands of time. The most important step, the most important place on the memorial isn't a historic event and it isn't the name of a martyr. It's actually this blank space. The space symbolizes that the Civil Rights Movement didn't begin with the decision in Brown v. Board, and it certainly didn't end with Dr. King's death. It continues through the work of all of us people of goodwill who are dedicated to the propositions that all people are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. All of you, I think, have an incredibly important obligation to carve the next chapter in our country's civil rights history in that stone. One of the things that separates us from so many other countries is an adherence to the rule of law proud lawyers, and an independent judiciary. Russia has you know, high-sounding words in its constitution, but it means nothing. It means nothing without people who are willing to take a stand, who are willing to risk a lot to make those ideals a reality. I want to impl- applaud you all for being members of ACS I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for what you're going to do after my time is long gone, and I want to thank you for your attention today. Thank you very much. So thank you so much, Richard, for those amazing reflections. We have about 10 minutes or so for some questions. If anyone has some, I'll be coming around with the mic, so just raise your hand. Just a couple of rules on questions, only easy ones, no multi-part questions. <laughs> and, and I think your colleagues would be happy to hear your own reflections as well.
2: Hello. Hey. Thank you for your words. It's an amazing presentation. Uh, My name is David. I attend the Indiana University Maurer School of Law. Prior to law school, I served in leadership in a center-right national nonprofit in support of criminal justice and immigration reform. And part of me joining the team at the nonprofit was to provide my own perspective on issues working on those. Um, The difficulties was that in your work you're able to notice the certain racial undertones that are barriers to policy. I just want to get your take on what are some of the limitations of some of those orgs, and what can they do better? Say it
1: again. Say it again a little louder.
2: I'm, just, I'm asking, what are the limitations of, the, of those orgs, and what can they do better? Because you confront the racial undertones and the barriers in your work, and they don't necessarily see it. So, for example, I'm working on immigration policy. What are the barriers to actually passing immigration reform now? And are we actually confronting the racism problem in America while doing that?
1: I guess I think that you probably know the answer to that question. Uh, I think America has, you know, a certain amount of racial amnesia. I think the country doesn't like to hear bad news. Much of the country doesn't like to hear bad news. I think in many ways the uh, slogan, Make America Great Again, is a uh, cry not to confront what our true racial problems are, I think it's really critical for you, for everyone in this room, to make sure that people see those problems and remember them front and center. We don't have to be ugly about it. We're trying to, uh, you know, build bridges between us and people who think differently. We ought to assume that most that people are acting in, you know are with an open heart and goodwill, uh, because if they're not and we're not gonna make any headway with them and we need to treat them with the presumption that they are. Uh, But I think we can't let people close their eyes to the injustice that's around them. Yeah, my friend. You, you're my friend. You. (laughs) Uh, You started with a quip. You started with a quip about the changing courts and uh, the arguments that we wouldn't make Um, and you're the head of a organization that does impact litigation. And I'm wondering how your work is changing and your strategy is changing now, the cases that you don't wanna bring, the courts you don't wanna be in front of, and and how you uh, make the change you wanna make in that environment. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And the kinds of changes that we're seeing in the courts and the kinds of different tactics that we need to employ have been things that we've been thinking about for more than a decade. When you if, if if you pulled out the uh, articles of incorporation from the United, from the Southern Poverty Law Center in 1971, you'd hear it talking about the universe of ever expanding rights by the courts and whatnot. And it almost seems you know it's 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 almost laughable at this point. We can never give up on the courts for a variety of reasons. But at the Southern Poverty Law Center, we've tried to develop other uh, tools for advocacy. We have a very, very substantial lobbying contingent. We have a very important you know communications function and you know and, and it find it you know helpful oftentimes to mobilize people. So it's really you know kind of a full court press. I want to say one thing about lawsuits and why I think they're so important. America America is obsessed with lawsuits. If people can't watch, if people can't watch OJ in the morning. They watch Judge Judy in the afternoon. And because America, lawsuits are incredible morality plays. You know, they're the, they put, pit good and evil about, you know, against each other. They're also powerful in the sense that we can sue the Trump administration and demand that they come before the Bar of Justice and answer. No comment doesn't work in a lawsuit, it means you lose. So we can make people. Answer for their conduct. Sometimes lawsuits you file, you might not think you can win them, but you're able to put them on the public agenda, put the issues on the public agenda, agenda in a very, very remarkable way. And in some cases, still, you know, it's able. We're able to win. We we won an injunction last month, uh, towards the end of December stopping the Trump administration for refusing to accept uh, asylum applications anyplace other than uh, ports of entry. Uh, we've had you know, just lawsuit after lawsuit challenging the Trump administration on a variety of fronts. We're gonna win some, we're gonna lose some, but we always have to try. Yes, ma'am. I have a feeling that you have a voice that can be heard. Am I? Oh, okay. I just wanted to be respectful, thank you. Um, Mr. Cohen, what do you say, or what are your thoughts on so-called liberals and progressives in the political arena who are using uh,
0: hot sauce and, and uh, rap artists to pander to the black, uh, black Americans
1: for votes and using Trump and everything he is doing wrong as a scapegoat to gain leverage in the political arena? I, I, I'm not sure what do you think uh, I think it's very cowardly
2: um, I think that in this political arena you need to pull your own way you need to speak to your accomplishments etc and your commitment to service to the people in order to gain leverage in the political arena but I, I, I actually wanted to, I, uh,
1: I I agree with you I think that sounds right I haven't thought about it as much as you okay so thank you for those thank comments you. Okay. thank you all right yes sir
2: Hi, uh, Alex here
1: This is the radio voice, in case you forgot the fun fact.
2: Hi there, guys. Alex Finkelstein here <laughs> with a question. Um, in the the last few years, the importance of the media has been highlighted, to say the least, uh, as a watchdog, as a, a fourth check. Um, how has your relationship with the media changed over, let's say, the last three years, and how you publicize your work?
1: Well, you know, we when we released our, uh, annual count of hate groups and on Wednesday, we got you know, a fair amount of traction. Uh, and so you know, I think the media is, I think, hungry uh, for messages. Uh, I think one of the problems for us nowadays is, and we're a nonpartisan organization, but in an era where there's such polarization, it's hard to seem nonpartisan. And so, so much of the media, because of the high degree of polarization, simply will dismiss any facts that they find that don't fit into, you know, their world vision that come from progressive organizations. You know, the the center has been hollowed out. And, you know, and I think that's a problem for, I think that's a problem for all of us. I think it's a problem for thoughtful conservatives as well. Thank you. I think we have a question here and two there. You might have just been waving to me. I just can't tell.
2: So you talked a lot about compromise, uh, including in your answer to the first question. And I've been concerned that in a world where the Republican Party, even if they're not moving lockstep with the president, are moving lockstep with his policies, um, I'm wondering whether you think it is possible to, as the cliche goes, compromise on policy without compromising our values, and if so, how we would go about doing that?
1: Well, that's a, that's a, that's a tough question. You know, um, in some ways, sometimes I think Mr. Trump is in a good position to compromise because he has no values. Precisely, you know, precisely for that reason. You know, I think that, you know, what we're seeing now is a realignment of the parties, right? The, you know, you have the Freedom Caucus uh, among the Republicans. You have a split within the Democratic Party between, you know, kind of the centrist and the people who are represented or who, you know, the, the AOCs of the world. And so I think we're looking at a big realignment of both parties. Uh, Is there going to be a center that forms, or are we going to just, are the both parties going to drift further apart? I don't know. I mean, I think that ultimately, you know, we have to accommodate legitimate interest in our country. We have to recognize that, you know, saying, you know, let's split the difference isn't something incredibly evil. We're not going to get anywhere otherwise. I'm I'm not sure I have much advice that Mr. McConnell would take. So we have time for one more question. Hi, thanks again for your um, presentation. I do have a question. Are state courts kind of the new ground for civil liberties and constitutional issues versus federal courts? Thank you. Yeah, well, I think that's a great question and I should have, respond, should have mentioned that uh, to, the, to the gentleman earlier. I think in many places that's the case. Uh, I think that in the area of children's rights uh, we've seen that in many places around the country. Unfortunately, where the Southern Poverty Law Center practices in the deep, deep South, we don't have a lot of those opportunities. But you know, I know there was uh, uh, Justice Stevens recently wrote what I thought was an important uh, article in the New York Review of Books that made just that point because I think he sees that the Supreme Court is, uh, uh, needs help and needs guidance from other courts around the country. Again,
2: thank you for letting me be here today.